welcome to the Advance Your Art podcast, where we talk about the journey from artist to entrepreneur and everything in between. You've worked hard to hone your craft. Now take it to the next level with tips, techniques, strategies, and routines used by successful artists to grow their businesses and careers. Now, let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yuri Cataldo. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Advance Your Art with Yuri Cataldo. If you're interested in learning how to build a company, make money from your art, or transition to a new career, you've come to the right place. If you like this episode, please remember to like and share it with a friend. Today, I'm chatting with Danielle Glosser, principal and founder of Client Razor. Danielle, how are you today? Great. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, so how, because again, we're, we're recording this in the middle of, of uh, the, certain, or the current COVID crisis, uh, how are things where you are right now? So I'm in Washington, D.C., and as we all know, there's been a lot of protests in the time of COVID as well. So a lot of my clients are not only struggling to make their art and advance their art practice, but they're also on the forefront of the protests as well. Yeah. Have you... Have you heard a lot of, I guess, feedback from them on on how things are going in general? Sure. I mean, I think that there's been a number of changes made locally and across the country because of the protests, and so people are thrilled with that. On the art front, uh, people are selling work. I mean, things are very slow, but definitely some sales are happening. In fact, I've sold three pieces for clients in the past few months, so that's not nothing. That's good, that's a good sign. Okay, so we'll get into that in a second, but first off, uh, how do you describe yourself and what you do? So I'm a business consultant to artists. What I basically do is assess the business side of their art practice, and I created a whole system to do that after working with 125 artists in 16 states over the past five years. Wonderful. So when, when you say, I guess, artists in that term, what types of areas do you specifically focus on? So I specifically work with visual artists. So sculptors, painters, performance artists, multimedia, photographers, any anyone that falls under the visual arts category. Okay, great, great, great. So let's back up a little bit. Um, so you originally went to school for something a, a little bit different. So when you originally went to, to college, what were you, why did you want us to study um, those those topics and what were you originally thinking you wanted to do? So I originally thought I wanted to be a diversity trainer. I um, got my undergrad at the University of Arizona. They had a special interdisciplinary arts, I'm sorry, interdisciplinary studies program. So I combined communications, marketing, and psychology, which I use to this day. And uh, after a getting my dream job of working for the Golden State Warriors with the NBA, 
I thought I wanted to work in the marketing field, but after one season, the novelty wore off and I really wanted to focus on my true interest, was, which was race issues. So at the time, you could only get a PhD in race issues and I was not about to do that. So I was told to get a master's in sociology and find professors that were studying race issues. So I wound up at George Washington University and did just that. Great, great. And then, so it, it looks like after you graduated, you started to work a little more in public policy and in government. How did, how did that go? So my first job out of grad school was a, with an organizational development firm, and we focused on diversity issues with Fortune 500 companies. So when issues came up that made the news we were kind of flown in to help handle not the crisis management pr side but the internal side like what needed to happen in terms of making changes within the organization um, from there president clinton had started an initiative on race issues and a former contact had an in there because i really wanted to work at the White House. Why not? I'm in DC. So uh, actually during my interview, my boss didn't ask me one question. He basically said, well, if Cheryl recommended you, I know you're worthwhile to hire. So you're in. So it took about six months to get cleared by the Secret Service. Mm -hmm. But that was my job interview, yeah. which was me asking him questions. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Well, it sounds like a pretty sweet interview then. So how how long then did you kind of stay in the, like say, consulting, race relations, public policy, D.C. So type Holland, of world? I think I worked on that about 15 years. From the White House, President mm -hmm. Clinton doled out parts of his initiative to different nonprofits. So I had been working with religious leaders on race issues. So I went to the group that got that element and I became their director of public policy and basically led 65 offices around the country in terms of anything related to discrimination around race, religion, sexual orientation, gender, ability, ageism. So it really was a great organization. It's now defunct. It was called the National Conference for Christians and Jews, and they had then changed their name to the National Conference for Community and Justice. So tell me about then your journey from, from those early days to what you're doing now, and what initially made you want to start the, the company Client Razor? So it's a great story. Um, I stayed home with my kids for 10 years, and my brother's a screenwriter in LA and he always sends me his screenplays, which I never like any of them because they're just violent and not interesting to me. But one day he sent one that was fantastic. I just loved it and I was so riveted by it and I realized, well, I want to be excited about my work again. <laughs> so <laughs> I had been helping him out with some story ideas and I found a nonprofit that was hiring a part-time person to help with the intersection of 
social justice and the films that they were creating. So I thought, oh, this is perfect. So craziest interview process I've ever been through in my life. Like they had, I don't know, six interviews. They talked to 10 references. At the end of the day, I didn't get the job. And I found out they were going to pay me $15 an hour. So I was so pissed. I realized right then and there, I was going to have to start my own business to have a flexible schedule. So someone told me to focus on what came naturally and that was easy it was networking i'm always talking to strangers and everyone in the room i just love people that's what i really am excited about in life getting to know other people and their stories so i realized i had a bunch of friends starting companies whether it was a massage therapist or a psychologist or meditation expert and they just wanted to focus on their field, not getting clients. So it struck me one day, I was actually in the swimming pool and I realized, <laughs> wow, maybe I could start something to help them get clients and they can focus on what they're doing and I can help them in that regard. So I interviewed probably 30 solopreneurs over the course of a few months. And in the middle of this process, our neighbor, who's a very famous artist, called me and he said, are your boys home? And I said, yes. And he said, can I use them as models? So I said, sure. So he came over with his lights and props. And two hours later, I'm like, oh, by the way, what's this for? And he said, I've been asked to submit for the White House Christmas ornament. And I'm like, awesome. I want my kids on the White House Christmas ornament. So we had to go down to his studio and he said, I have to submit a description. What do you think of this, what he had wrote? And I read it and I said, it's terrible. I said, let me rewrite it for you because I have a vested interest in getting my kids on the White House Christmas ornament. Mm -hmm. So then I started thinking, oh, do artists need help with strategic planning and project management and research and writing and networking? So I went to talk to him about it. And before I said a word, he said, I've been thinking I want you to represent me. And I was like, what? Like, I don't know anything about art. Um, I have no training background, anything at all. And he said, well, look at your art collection, look at your interest in design. And I was like, what art collection? Like, we have a fabulous art collection, but it never struck me as an art collection. Like, we just love buying art, but truly we are collectors and I do love design. So I decided to help him out and I shared with maybe the 10 people helping me decide, you know, my business route, what was going on. And I got two more clients. I got a friend's friend that was an artist and a friend's son. So I decided, okay, I'm just gonna focus on helping artists and see what happens. So over the course of the past five years, I've helped about 125 artists in 16 different states. That's wonderful. And that's, I really like your story. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> so, so, so what does client raiser do in general and, and what types of projects do you, do you look for? I know we've talked a little bit about visual artists, but are there particular types um, that you really focus on? So my company is basically threefold. First and foremost, I help artists to empower themselves as entrepreneurs. 
So I assess the business side of their practice through this inventory assessment process where I look at all their branding and marketing materials. I interview them to learn all about them and their work and how they're wired so I can best assess recommendations to give them to reach their goals because it's all about their goals. You know, there's lots of art professionals that help artists, gallerists, art consultants and the like, but they have other customers as well where my primary focus is the artist and what they're trying to do. So that's the first element. The second element of my business is I do a lot of community workshops. I've spoken at probably, I don't know, 20 local nonprofits in the greater Washington DC area. And just this past January, I had the opportunity to speak at the Smithsonian's Hershore Museum and Sculpture Garden, which was fantastic as well. And then the third element of my business is I do represent my artists. And it's interesting because I do not discriminate against anyone based on their work, their artwork. So if someone wants to work with me because they think they're a professional artist, then I'm happy to help them reach their goals because I believe that there's an audience for everyone. And so I have found some unique opportunities for my clients. In terms of projects that I'm pursuing, I'm always out there hustling for my clients just because I think it's fun. Uh, one time I talked a major commercial real estate firm into firing their art consultant in Las Vegas and hiring me to help them find local artists. Um, another thing I love is I will get called for art emergencies. Like this has happened three times. In fact, it just happened last week. I have a co-working space that does exhibitions and their curator fell through. So in two weeks, you know, they have to pull together this show. So I helped them identify three of my clients that will be featured. Um, in January, this happened as well. I had a major nonprofit, the show fell through. And again, I helped them select a few of my clients to have solo shows in a great space out in Virginia. So those are always really fun to, do. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, that's very cool. I, I said, never thought of art emergencies in that way, but, uh, but yeah, you know, the show must go on right, right. no matter what. We can't have blank walls ever. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I love it. So I, I want to talk, I guess, and hone in about the actual, let's see, the artist side of this. So what's some, I guess, common themes that you've noticed with artists who, who approach you who want to, you know, sell more of their art, but they really miss the boat on a couple of, of key items. Sure. So first off, this whole stereotype about artists being flaky and disorganized could not be more untrue. The people that I work with are so dedicated. Most of them are well organized. Most of them, you know, are really solid in their beliefs about what they're doing and what they're trying to accomplish. So they have the drive, just sometimes they might not have the business tools to do so. So some common themes that I see is, you know, there's no kind of strategic plan. Like everything is just piecemealed and they're just trying to grasp straws instead of lay out some real short-term and long-term goals. Mm -hmm. um, some other issues, the website. I mean, their website is everything in terms of marketing. And some of them are terrible. And I will tell them, I will say, 
we can salvage this, here's what you need to do, or this is so antiquated, you just need to scrap it and start anew. So I'm very transparent in my advice. I don't sugarcoat anything. Like if you have an ugly business card, I'm gonna tell you, and I'll tell you how to improve upon it. Yeah. Um, that's really the difference between me and like an art coach, I think, is because a coach, one, is usually an artist themselves, which I am not, mm-hmm. and two, they tend to like look at the whole picture and have you kind of think through what you want, where I'm very direct about my suggestions and um, provide not only action items, but a time frame as well. Mm-hmm. Do you, so everybody, let's say who comes to you that you start working with, do you also represent them or is that another facet of the company that you decide to do if you like the artist? No, I I represent everyone as long as they want me to. I mean, I do have a legal agreement that I have them sign if an opportunity arises. Um, Obviously, some work is more marketable than others. I find that it's very difficult to sell sculpture. Um, Clearly, my performance artists, I'm helping them more with grants than trying to get them some kind of commission. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, I'd say that that the setup yeah so i'm i'm interested in your so you're you mentioned marketable and i know that i guess that term has changed a lot in a few years when i went to art school years ago the idea that you would kind of create something that was more marketable may feel like you were selling out or at least you know to young 20 somethings were like you know what i'm not gonna cave kind of thing whereas nowadays you know a younger generation coming up they're more you know, um, easygoing with like putting out their materials and, and, you know, trying to make things more marketable. How have you noticed your clients think about this term of marketable and, and in your own business, what seems to be more marketable now in 2020? It's an excellent question. So I'm, I was just asked this morning on a call with a client, should I be making more work that's identifiable by my style and everything? And ultimately I say it's up to the artist. If, mm-hmm. if your goal is to make money and that's what you want to do is only create work to make money, then that's fine. That's your goal. That's what you want to do. If you know, you just want to cr- create art because that is what's flowing out of you and, it might not be as sellable. That's fine too. And if you want to go rat- that route, then I'm going to help you more on the grants front. So I think that often a lot of artists don't look at the different types of revenue streams. So right now I've been encouraging people, I would have never said this before COVID, ever, <laughs> to put their prices on their websites to make it just transparent right off the bat of what your prices are. And also to consider making prints just because they're less expensive and more people can afford to buy them. So I think in terms of pivoting to make art more accessible to all is important right now as an artist, if you are trying to make money. So why do you encourage the artist to put the prices up on the website, right? Specifically, uh, specifically right now versus other times. Well, before I would say, you know, the ultimate goal is to have someone 
contact you so you can get them on the phone and talk to them about your work and discuss your process and all that. And so they're not scared away by the price where now I feel like someone might look at that and be like, oh, wow, that's only 300 bucks. So I'm just going to buy it through Shopify on their website right now instead mm -hmm. of waiting to contact the artist. Oh, sure. Okay. That's, that's good to know. So beyond that, what are some other trends that you are noticing happen now with visual artists because of COVID? Or how do you see even the industry evolving now because of COVID? Well, as we know, a lot of galleries are going to shut down. I mean, from what I've read, the projected numbers like 15%. So for folks that were really focused on getting in a gallery, I would put that on the back burner because they're just going to be struggling to stay afloat once they open and they're going to be focused on their current stable. Mm -hmm. So I think social media is a huge tool. I mean, I know so many people that have sold work on Instagram. I even have a client that sells work on LinkedIn. I mean, oh, wow. he got three commissions from a university. So don't neglect LinkedIn. And I think YouTube is much more of a player now for artists because you can not only show your process, but you can also teach classes and get followers that way. And often students want to buy their teacher's work. So it's a great way to get, you know, a twofer, as mm -hmm. we say. Oh, yeah, that's great. I, so I, I want to hear your thoughts on the idea of fear. So I know a lot of, you know, in general, artists, uh, and actually everybody else right now, fearful about what's happening with the current environment, where the future is going. Um, even as an artist, the idea of putting yourself out there more and trying new things, um, getting people to buy your work can also be fearful. So how do you approach the idea of, of fear and apprehension when you talk to your clients and how do you help them get past that fear? That's a great question. And really, I think it comes from practice. Just like anything else, public speaking is obviously a huge fear for people. So the more you get out there and pitch your work, the easier it's going to become. And you just have to make yourself do it. And know that really there's no right or wrong. That as long as you're being authentic and true to you and true to your work, I mean, sure, you might say something stupid, but I promise you, you're not going to say it again if you catch it. So I think that it's fine just to know that you're not an expert marketer and that you, you know, are an artist and that's your skill level, but you do have to know how to articulate your work. And so it's important to practice that. I mean, I practiced my elevator pitch for months till I got it down and now I can say it in my sleep. So I encourage my clients to write an artist statement, which I help them with, so they really can flesh out what inspires them, um, everything about their work from the materials and process to the images themselves. And then they can glean from the artist statement what their elevator pitch is and really learn how to softly share that with people to get their attention and hopefully attract some more clients. Great. With your, so I know you have some, um, some things that you give out to your clients. Are there particular, let's say, books or articles 
you often recommend to artists to learn more about the, the process that you were describing? I don't really provide them with written materials because my process is just as organic as theirs. Mm, okay. So for years, people have asked me, can you do a workshop on how to write an artist statement? And I've really struggled with how to do that. And at the end of the day, I just decided that I can't because I really need to be able to probe the person to understand different elements about them and their art practice and take that time one on one. And I just wouldn't feel comfortable people leaving a workshop without a finished product because it's a process that takes time. I mean, I'd say it takes on average a few months from, from start to finish. I did create three different exercises for my clients to go through. So I basically get them to generate data, just mm -hmm. words and sentences instead of sitting down to write an artist statement. You know, that can be really painful. So this way, hopefully they find it. I, I know a lot of them actually find it much easier and they are thrilled out of their minds when it's over. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. I, so I'm curious with that and the artist statement, how much when, when in your, you know, in your uh, experience, when somebody buys a piece of art, how much of that is coming from the story of the artist or their relationship with the artist versus just falling in love with their, their visual medium? Another great question. It really depends on the collector. Some collectors are really focused on the CV and the artist statement in addition to their work. And so are curators and art consultants. If they are, you know, getting a show together or buying for a certain type of client, your average collector online, they're probably going to care less about your artist statement. They just care about decorating their home. Mm -hmm. So it just really depends on the sophistication of the collector and what they're trying to accomplish. Okay. Okay. Good, good to know. So with everything that you have experienced and, and done over the years, what would you say has been the best advice that you have ever received? When I worked for the nonprofit, I remember being on an airplane with my boss who I adored. And we were talking about my future and he said, you know, you really need to decide if you wanna be a generalist or a specialist. And I knew that I wasn't a specialist. Like I knew that I'm the type that has too many interests in my you know, fingers and too many different projects going on than to just be an expert in one topic. Now, I think that that's a noble path to be an expert in one area, just like some artists are only painters, where some artists are prolific and they do every kind of visual art, which I find fascinating. So it just really, I think depends on what each person feels comfortable doing and what they want to pursue. And at the end of the day, the motto in our house is be who you want to be, do what you want to do. And I deeply believe that. And I think that the more people tune into what they want instead of what their parents have said they should do or not do or their partners or whoever else in their life, I think that that will yield the best results. Mm -hmm. 
Wonderful. Well, Danielle, again, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. If the listeners would like to get a hold of you and see more about what you're working on and, and read about your company, where are the best places they can go to do that? So they can go to my social media accounts, which is Client Razor, that's C-L-I-E-N-T-R-A-I-S-E-R, or they can reach me at Danielle at ClientRazor.com. Wonderful. I will put those links in the show notes so they can click right through. Thank you. Excellent. Well, again, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Jerry. Great to see you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Advance Your R podcast. If you like this episode, please go into iTunes and give us a five-star rating. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button so that every single time I release a new episode, it will go directly to you without even thinking about it. If you're interested in hearing older episodes, please go to AdvanceYourArt.com where you can find the catalog of everything I've done so far, as well as contact information and projects I'm working on. Thank you again, and have a great day.